I want you to turn to two places briefly back to where we were last Sunday, Psalm 106. And then we'll go from there to where I ended last week to 3 John 2. So I'm going to start with Psalm 106, which is a history. It's sort of putting the history of Israel in a capsule, showing how God was good, how people turned from God, but how God restored them and how this. It's just a constant show of history of the Jewish people. And this is one of the prominent things that it says. You'll find the same thing in Psalm 78. And a lot of this in Psalm 107, the next psalm. But in Psalm 106, in verse 12, he said, Then believe they his words, and they sang his praise. And we praise the Lord for that, because that's where it's supposed to be. They heard it, they were impressed by it, and they gave glory by praise to God. And then it says in verse 13, as has happened so much, they soon forgot his works, they waited not for his counsel. And then it says, But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request. But along with what they asked for, he gave them something else. And we spoke of this last week. He sent leanness into their souls. It does not say by sending leanness into somebody's soul that you're rejected or that you're cast out of God's presence. But it does mean that all that God has for you, you're not going to realize it. You're going to walk around with some fragmented knowledge of God, but you're not going to be enjoying all of his benefits. And you know and I know that the Bible teaches that God has benefits for his people, does he not? In fact, we're told not to forget all of his benefits. And then he tells us a whole lot of what they are. That's what we're supposed to enjoy. He forgives all of our sins, and he heals all of our diseases. That's supposed to be. It isn't always, but that's not God's fault. Sending leanness into these people's soul wasn't something that God decided to do because we need some leanness on this earth. These people would not do things that God asked them to do, and they rebelled against God, so God sent leanness into their soul because of the way they acted, the mistakes that they made. And leanness in Christianity means you have the form. You have the great ideas about God and about heaven and the future and all of that. You have all of the, all the right ideas down pat, but you're not enjoying it. Every time a breeze blows through this world, there's fear. You don't know what you will do. You say that to each other. I'm not saying you do, but people do. Well, what would we do if I just don't know what we're going to do? And if we don't, this doesn't work. I mean, it's like people have heard the word and heard the word and heard the word, but they can't remember it. Or if they do remember it, they don't know if it'll work. That's leanness. What a way to live a, a Christian life, to be so lean and uncertain and fearful and afraid and, and never sure. A lean life. Now, notice again, he said here, in this section, there were three things. In verse 13, they forgot his works. That would be like us coming this far along as we have come. We've been here as a church for, what, 31 years? 31 in May. And growing silent, having forgotten all the wonderful things he has done in our past for 30 years. When we look back at the times when things were lean financially, and we prayed and look what God did, and then here we've grown silent. Have we forgotten? Well, they did. 
It seems to be the nature of man who has a conceptual relationship with God, but it's not real. They forgot his works, all the things that he had done for them. You see that in verse 21 or, or verse 24. And they waited not for his counsel. You know what that means? They did it their way. The Bible said this is the way walk in. And they said, well, yeah, it's true. The Bible says that. But now, you know, this is a different time. This is a different age. And things he said then may not work today. And so men take matters into their own hands. You cannot, none of us. We, you, me, none of us can have a good relationship to God if we do that. The ideal and the one that God will hold us to is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to what? Because it's your understanding which identifies your ways and your ideas and your opinions and they seem so much better than God's, especially in light of this modern society. And yet that's what gets people in trouble because those are the seeds of rebellion that lead us astray. And we go off. And then God has to deal with us. Sometimes he sends leanness into our souls. We, like our parents or our ancestors, church is just a thing that good people do. If you're good and socially proper, you go to church somewhere. It doesn't have to mean anything. You just ought to be there because that's what church is for. It makes us better people. It's just leanness. And then the third thing they did was they lusted and they murmured. We looked at that and they murmured and they complained against God. After all the things that he had done, the most astounding works in history will never be repeated. Nothing will ever again equal the deliverance from the Red Sea and the 40 years in the wilderness. Nothing on this earth will ever be as magnificent as that was. As I've said, they wandered in the desert. There are no rivers in the desert. There is no water. There are no grocery stores. There are no shops. And yet, a million, two people, 1.2 million anyway, maybe more, had water every day to feed thousands of animals thousands of people for their cooking, their bathing, and everything else you need water for. They had so much food that they had to go pick it up all day long. These were his works, God's works, cloud by day, fire by night, not even a feeble one in the whole bunch of, it wasn't a sick, ill person in the whole nation. And everywhere they went, all those thousands of miles they traveled, the soles on their shoes never wore out. And he said they forgot that. And they started complaining. Like in Psalm 78, well, he did this and he that. Yeah, he did. He fed. He did. But can he do this? And the Bible said God was angry. So he is more to us than that. And I go to 3 John 2 because I ended our sermon last Sunday by saying this, wouldn't you really rather have prosperity of soul? If you were here, you probably remember that. I said in 3 John 2, our text for today, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. And I said to you, would you not rather have a prospering soul? Because just two benefits outlined here, there's more. 
But two things you will enjoy if your soul is prospering, he says, is prosperity and health. And oh, how they write books today against this so-called health and wealth gospel. I'm sure somebody has done that wrong or preached about this wrong, but it seemed like if you mentioned prosperity and health today, they put you in a category of error that misleads people. I wish above what? The word wish means to pray. It could mean vow. It's a desire, an expressed desire. And so he said, I wish above all things. Man, all things. If somebody said, what's the most important thing for you that you can think of in your walk on this earth with God? I'm not talking about your salvation. He's given you that. As a saved person, what is it that most interests you, you need the most, think about the most, or bothered by the most? What's health and money? That troubles more people today probably than anything, anything else. Elections are based on jobs, money. And health plans. Give me the loan me can you spare. I mean, this is the age you're in. And he said in 3 John 2 that he said that he wishes above all things that you and I may prosper and be in health even as. So the condition upon which these two things are going to prosper, whether you receive that at the kind of level he wants you to have it, really depends on whether or not your soul your soul is prospering. That would be, to me, the opposite of your soul being lean. If my soul is prospering, it is not lean. Amen. And if my soul is lean, it is not prospering. When it's lean, I'm not enjoying. When it's prospering, I obviously am. And both of these two things are in the Bible. One will come if, and the other is given to you if. And you're sitting out there, and the choice is yours. I'm standing here. The choice is ours as to what we're going to do and whether or not this is going to work for us. A lot of people are talked out of this in religious circles. They say, well, yes, it says that, but obviously it doesn't really mean it the way we read it because too many people in the church are not well, and too many people in the church are broke, which means if we don't see well people and prosperous people, then the Bible isn't true. But I would rather say the Bible is true whether we're well or sick or prosperous or broke. The Bible's not true because I see it in you. The Bible's true because God said it. That's why it's true. I don't make it true. You can't make the word true by believing it. It's true whether we believe it or not. It's there as an object for your faith. You can believe this. You can believe this. I believe that for me, my family, and all my children. I do. Like God said, that it will be well with you and your children after you. All of them. That's how I believe that. I want that. But now notice, he wants us to prosper and to be in health. Now, does he really mean that? I asked you a Wednesday night here a couple weeks ago when it says knock and it shall be open, seek, and you shall find, ask, and it shall be given to you. And a lot of people read that, but they've never experienced that. And you know that's true. Well, I asked and I didn't get anything. 
Well, I knocked and the door never did open. And, and that's their theology. They passed that kind of belief system along to their children. They passed it on to the church. And people no longer get excited about such a promise because they're convinced. It ain't going to work. But is it prosper and be in health? Does that mean that we can prosper? Me? But your parents aren't rich. How can you prosper? You don't have a big time paying job. How can you prosper? Let's see what the word prosper and health means so we can get it in the right context. First of all, for the Greek word for prosper is used three times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and here in 3 John 2. Now here's what the word prosper means. One, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, making requests, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. So here his desire, and he uses this word for prosper, that he might have a successful journey in coming to you, that he'll get there, and he'll get there in one piece, and he'll be able to function when he gets there. It's having a successful journey. We often pray for a successful trip. Well, that is, in the context of this word prosper, what it can mean. It means to have good success. Is there anybody against good success? See, we tend to limit God's potential on the job you have. How could God prosper me when I only make so? Do you think God is limited by your job? Do you think that you handicap God with your job? I remember when I was deeply encouraged in my spiritual man to claim a new house paid for. And I was out in what they call then the field. You're in the field. And I felt like I was in a field. I had no steady income from anybody or anywhere. You never knew what kind of income you were going to have. Every year at tax time, I got to use my faith because I paid taxes on what I estimated I was going to get. I had no clue what I was going to get, but you get to use your faith. I told my tax lady back in 1973, I think it was, she said, well, what are you going to estimate for 73? I said, $30,000. The year before, I'd made ten. <laughs> well, see, well, hopefully my faith was growing. And I was able to believe that God can do better than what I have done. He's unlimited. And the only thing that limits God is my faith. He is able to be exceeding abundantly above. Yeah. So I told Mrs. Smith, that was her name, Mrs. Smith, 30000 All right. Your quarterly payments are going to go up. I said, well, that's, that's okay. And the Lord gave me thirty-three that year. Now, folks, listen. $33,000 in 1973 was a whole lot of money. I never asked for it. People gave me money that I didn't even know. I wasn't trying to get it. I wasn't preaching about it. I remember one night in Lexington at a Bible study, they come up and stick money in my pocket. Checks. I didn't say, get that out of here. What's, I rebuke you. I <laughs> stuck stuff in there, and I went home, and I'd, I about ran off the road one night driving home. Somebody stuck a check in my pocket for $3,000. I didn't think it was that much money in the world. $3,000. 
And you know what? My faith began to grow. Mr. Smith nearly passed out next year. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Every time I'd step out there, God would meet me. I had a limit to how far I could step because my faith is real. Won't you just claim a million because I ain't got million-dollar faith in my heart, but I sure got a 50 in there. And a 50 would do me pretty good, so I got 50. Following year, it started to level off after that. And I'll tell you why. For me, it, that was more than sufficient. I didn't need any more. I did not have a spirit of greed. I did not try to see how much I could get. I didn't need any more. That was sufficient to carry us through. And it did. Then I quit asking. And God just opened the gates. A man prophesied to me one night in our church in Charleston. you remember that? He said, Brother Hamilton, you... You do minister, don't you? I said, yes. He said, I just had an absolute marvelous vision of you. I said, brother, God is opening windows of heaven on you, and he's pouring out a blessing on you. Praise God. You, Oh, boy. Stuff like that. Well, I'm here all excited because I'm broke. <laughs> I ain't got nothing in my pocket. This is before all this started. This is before it all started. And I had trouble with it because how could that be? I don't make that much. How could that... How would that kind of money ever come to me? How could I have a house paid for? I don't even have an income. I just live by whatever. And you do that because God isn't limited by money. He's only limited by your faith. So I began to believe God and bang, he did it. Now, does prosper mean that? The other use of the word prosper in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by in store as God has prospered him. In other words, how much money are you going to give? Don't wait till I get there to have to go through the collection process. But as God has prospered you this week, lay that much aside. Whatever's in your heart, between you and God, you lay that aside. So here he's talking about money. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong for money to have you. It's not wrong to prosper. It's not wrong to be well or be at ease or have a successful journey. It doesn't take thousands and thousands of dollars and yachts and airplanes to make us content. We're content in whatever state we're in, but we can believe God for whatever we need. I have to admit, the older I've gotten, the more I do believe for because there's more ways I can do things. If I had more, I could do more. I don't need any more for myself, but others do. Isn't that okay? You kind of get out of yourself and into somebody else. And you hope you can spread this believing system around to the whole church so that we can come to a place where the last thing we grumble about is money or some political thing or some loss of the stock market, or this is going down and all things are going to get tight. Tight, smite, diddly old white, T-legged, tie-legged, bow-legged tight. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the world says. Prosperity, folks, is what God said to Joshua. He said, if you will meditate in this words, hide these words in your heart, and do what he says, he said, you'll be blessed in whatever you do, and you'll be prosperous and have good success. And it says in the next verse, Joshua 1, 9, that that would be the will of God. Does God bless people? 
I mean, does God cause, as an act of his will and desire, does God bless people? He does. He blesses people all the time. How about health? Is it all right to be well? Or is it promised to us? Or is health only for the young folks? And when you get older, you're not supposed to be well anymore. You're supposed to break down, fragment, and go away. Now, people think like that because that's the news. That's the system of this world. Look at all these old folks' homes, and when you get reach a certain age, you're supposed to break down, become feeble or emaciated, and you're just supposed to just dry up and go away. I don't believe that's what's in the Bible. There's a verse in the Bible that says that in old age, God's people will be fat and flourishing. Amen. Leonard, you hear that? <laughs> they will be... <laughs> They will be fat and flourishing. But see, fat doesn't mean that kind of fat. It means it's a word for abundance. He poured in the oil and the wine. Well, oil and wine are signs of abundance. That's the additions that God gave to us. And so that, the, you know, the end of a thing, including your life and my life, is better than the beginning. Trust me. It is better than the beginning. It is. The end of our life is better than the beginning. Listen to me. I, this isn't part of the message. The closer you get to the end, the more the picture begins to clear up. The more the reality is there. You slow down your pace. You're not busy here or there wondering about this or wondering about that. You're sitting on a porch drinking tea and watching heaven come at you. That's really not bad at all. And then you go to town, you're smiling. People think you stole something you know, because you've got this smile on your face. There's a joy in your life you got a source that is making life really meaningful for you. Folks, put a value on your life. Life is something precious. Not everybody has it in abundance. When God gave you his word and he said to read it, remember in Deuteronomy 32, 20-something, he said, for this is your life. This is your life. A man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? Every word. And concerning health, y'all still remember Proverbs 4, my son, attend to my words. Verse 20 says, incline your ear unto my sayings. This is what we're supposed to do as Christians. Let them not depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. Does that mean that the Word of God is like medicine to my flesh? Because that Hebrew word for health is also medicine. Does it mean that like Psalm 107, 20, He sent His Word and healed them? Does that mean that the Word of God has power to heal us of disease? Does it have the power to fix things that were not right? I told Brother Terry, you know... Somebody can get fired over this in a hospital. Because they go in there to cut something out, and they get in there, and it ain't in there no more. Who said it was in here? Who took that picture? Well, they're getting fired. They ain't have nothing in here. We're wasting all of our time. God can remove things. 
Because he's God. Nothing too difficult for God. Health, healing, wellness, wholeness, feeling good, living like you feel good, spreading it around, having a testimony on your lips. You say, well, why do things, I don't know why in all the many cases that it doesn't work for, I don't know why it doesn't, but I know this, it works enough for me to know that it works. And I know God is not a respecter of persons. I know that a lot of people have not found this out to be an experience in their life, and they've had a failure, and I know what I'm standing here saying is they feel, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm trying to honor God. We have not been cast away because we struggled. But hopefully, as we get our eyes open, we begin to have a reason for bearing down and pressing in. I am going to live on God's terms, and God is going to bless me like he said he would. He's going to bless us and keep us. Health and healing belongs to us. I mean, it's all through the Bible. We have read it far too many times. Well, let me ask you again. I asked you a while ago, does God promote all of this? Wait a minute now. What about those people who say, well, you all talk about health too much. You know, this health and wealth gospel that is a trend today of those antis who think that we're off. When we talk about healing and wellness and, and prosperity, they think we're preaching a health and wealth gospel. We're trying to get us another yacht or another airplane or misleading you by saying that you can do well in this life financially. And they become not seated in heavenly places with what they see, but they come down to the level of where we are and say, how can a man that has no more of an income than this and no more of an education or job or whatever than that, how can this man ever prosper? And they limit God. I say, let's go back up there in heavenly places and look at the world from God's vantage point and say that God has no problem fixing, making anything. Anything. They say, well, you all preach about it too much. It seems like every time you preach, you preach about healing and health. I wish I did. Here's my answer to those people. Because they're convinced. If you're one of them, and you are too, you're convinced that not everybody can be well. Not everybody can prosper. Christians. And therefore, you're only condemning people who don't, or you're misleading people who want to. And you talk too much about healing and health. Well, so we should preach on poverty and sickness. Let's praise God we're all sick this morning. All right, let's praise God that we're all broke. Well, I rebuke that. Let me ask you something. These people who say, well, you all really gotten off on your health stuff. How much money, sir, ma'am, how much money do you spend every year on health insurance? To the people who think we're off. How much? Wow. How much money do you spend on drugs every year? From aspirin to whatever you're given to go get to fix a little minor skirmish in your body from, you know, the doctor. How much money do you spend every year on drugs? How much do you spend on insurance? How much did your last physical cost and how long ago was it when you had your physical? What did it cost? And we preach about it too much? 
A man said to me one time, he said, you know, you talk about it too much. And I said, aren't you on medication for high blood pressure? And he was offended. He had to say yes. He didn't like that, but he had to say yes. And I said, and you're telling me I preach on it too much and it doesn't even work for you? Oh, you preach on it too much. Actually, we could preach on it every week because God says so much in the Bible about healing and about health and wellness and prosperity and abundance. Even Jesus said, I'm coming that you might have life and have it how? Have it more abundantly. So we tell people, you spend several thousand dollars a year for your body and you're telling me it's not a big deal? How about this? Let me give you a word that you can eliminate all dollars. No more money has to be spent on your body because God will take care of your body. God will show you information that he is the Lord of your temple, that you are his purchased possession, and that he is well able to supply everything you need to maintain your body. And quit listening to ads and commercials. Quit listening to all this talk about this and that. Sometimes you can't get around it. I know that. Jesus said, was it Matthew chapter 8? He bore your diseases and carried your pains in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that by his stripes you were, not might be, not could be, not ought to be, but you were healed. Now that will never change. That is an established fact, that you were healed by the stripes of Jesus. He did that for you. That's ours. And not only that, as I've already said, he also prospers you. Would you turn to Deuteronomy 28? We need to go to Deuteronomy 28 like once a month. This is our monthly journey to that vacation wonderland in Deuteronomy's book. What a great place for the weary to go. The benefits of Deuteronomy 28 are just wonderful. He begins by saying one thing. This is a condition. If. And it shall come to pass if. If you, you have a will, you can do this if you want to. But he says, if you're willing. If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God. Secondly, to obey or to observe and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. Two simple things. Listen and do. Remember a sermon we had a long time ago called Heathen Do? Yes. We could become the Heathen Do's. And this is what Heathen Do's do. They hear and they do. He said, if you'll do this, listen, God says, I will command all these blessings upon you. He said in verse 2, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Do you see that? All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Let me ask you a question. Why? What must I do for God to see to it and send blessings on me? What must I do? Two things. What's the first one? Hear. What's the second one? Do. Hear it and do it. Not just hear it as good listeners, but to diligently listen to what he's saying because he is talking to me as a person. I am being addressed. You don't say, I wonder if she's listening to that. Are you listening to that? He said, all these blessings shall come upon you and 
Go 55 miles. I go 75 miles. I ask the speed limit. These blessings can go 90. Ooh, and just roll and roll and, and just big abundant blessing gets you down and just, just loves on you. Oh, man. And I'll tell you what, you will really enjoy it. Because here's what he's promised. Here's some of the things. I won't read all of this, but here's some of the things that he has promised. Look at verse 8. The Lord shall command the blessing upon you in your storehouses and in all that you set your hand unto. Would that mean if Brother Jay had a dent fixing machine in his hand that he would bless that work of his hand and fix his dents better than maybe other people could fix dents or rob? Or the person who is barbering, wouldn't they do that better? Painting, electrifying, electric workers. Whatever you put your hand to. How about washing your dishes? Disciplining your child. <laughs> Whatever you put. It works better. Well, I didn't write this. You know that. But he said, after all the other blessed shall you be here. And there he goes down there in verse 8. He said, the Lord will command. Do you see that? God shall command the blessing upon you. And to bless you in the land which the Lord your God giveth thee. I would like to say standing here this morning that we, more so than anybody else, if we're the only people believing, now surely we're not, but if we're the only people believing, then all of us should be blessed by God's will. His blessing is commanded upon us. Verse 11. And the Lord will make you plenteous in goods. Is that wrong? For us to be plenteous in goods? I don't mean greedy and trying to get more that you don't need. Or you want to show off what you got. I ain't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about he'll give you what you want. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. I don't know what more a human being in this world with all of the adventures and all of the prospects and offerings that the world has. I can't imagine anybody needing to go further than right here. Because in this case, God leads you to all this and commands all these things to come. It was our Heavenly Father, resident in Jesus, who said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and what? For your Heavenly Father knoweth you have need of all these things. Nobody else can open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you. Windows of heaven, yeah. Concerning Jesus, it said, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be rich. What are we going to do with that? Act like it's not in there? Or are we going to say, hallelujah? <laughs> now you're awake. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, of course we will. Look at verse 12. The Lord shall open up unto thee his good treasure. And bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations. And you shall not borrow. Wouldn't that be a change? Wouldn't that be a great change? Wouldn't that be wonderful? 
I think it's amazing sometimes that people know you got more than anybody else, and they single you out. I don't promote borrowing, especially if Christians from Christians, because when that doesn't work out, it gets a little ornery. But I'd rather just say, look, we can be promoted, blessed by God, so that we're doing good. Look at chapter 30 here. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Look at verse 9. He just keeps telling us. Just keeps telling us. And God will make you plenteous in every work of your hand and in the fruit of your body and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. Amen? What if the Lord said that to my immediate family? The Lord will rejoice over you as he did over your daddy. So be it. Go back to 3 John 2. Because the condition for all of this happening for us is very clear. Even as thy soul prospers. That's what has to happen from our side for all the things I'm talking about to come to pass. Even as your soul prospers. Now, how does that happen? And what is what we're talking about? Well, I only mentioned this last week, but technically, technically, a lot of people think man is made of two components or two parts. The seen part, which is called the material part, the part you can see, that's the body. And the immaterial part, that on the inside, which you can't see, which is called the soul. And that man is a dichotomy, that is two parts. He is a soul and a body. The body is simply the house that houses who you are. When I look at your body, I see you. This is how you're known. Different sizes and shapes for all of us, different colors, different kinds. This is how we're made. Now, the thing that animates or gives expression to the body is the soul. Now, the third part, which I believe in, is also the spirit. And I believe when a man's spirit is not alive unto God and he is a natural man, remember that? A natural man who is, the New Testament describes, who is dead in trespasses and sins. That when I sin, and I sin by choice because God has given to your soulless area a will, a choice. You are this morning what you've chosen to be. Everything you can talk about were choices you made. We all live like this. My body does nothing more than respond to whatever my soul tells it to do. I mean, it looks twice, it thinks. That's where lust comes from. Hunger, eating too much, drinking, drugs, in the emotion and the intellectual realm. We reject God because it doesn't make sense. The realm of our soul has decided that some things are not sensible. That's not acceptable because it doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable. And if it's not sensible and it's not reasonable and there's no way to verify or prove this, how can it be so? And so the man on the inside, the soulish man, he rejects the things of God because they are not naturally discerned. Now, the spiritual man is the man on here who is dead, which is made alive unto God. When God gives life to us and our spirits are reborn. It means a man on the inside, this inner man, is made alive. 
It doesn't mean I'm going to follow it. Because he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So you can still disobey God even though you're made right. Do you hear me? But I've got this new life on the inside that God says in Ezekiel 11, I'll give them a new heart and a new spirit. And they'll keep my commandments and walk after me. And this war rages between what God says and what your mind can't get its head around. But we're told in Romans 12, too, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Remember that? Our mind doesn't think like God. He said in Isaiah 55, he said, your thoughts are not my thoughts. As a result, your ways are not my ways. But I brought you to me knowing how corrupt you are. And now I'm going to begin a process of, of spiritual life, combating the soulish, untrained areas of your life that made you vile. I'm going to change your life like this. Transformation. Becoming a new person. When you're born again, you're brand new all of a sudden, quickly. Salvation is a process. The saving of the soul. The transforming of a life doesn't happen instantly. It's a process. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. Peter simply says, receiving the end of your faith, which is what? Well, let me ask you a simple question concerning your soul and salvation. The transformation of your soul is a result of your faith. It's a process. It's not easy. Remember Jesus spoke of a cross? That Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. You know what the cross is for? To put all your opposition on it and die to it so that it no longer lives. And so that which is inside of you, like Christ, as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. It is no longer I, Paul said, who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That took time. And you receive the end of your faith. That's a spiritual substance in which a man's will is made willing to do what God said. That's all faith is. You being willing, commanding the will to agree with and to do what God said. You tell yourself you will listen to what God said, and you will do what God said. And your life changes. You're no longer just a Sunday go-to-meeting Christian. You're a Christian. You're living a life that not hardly any will live. Jesus said many will seek to enter in at this narrow gate, but won't be able. But some will. And so this thing about the soul and the spirit... The man who is corrupt in his trespasses and his sins, he gets saved, and the war begins. A real war. As the psalmist said, why art thou disquieted in me? Hope in God, soul. You're so depressed because you see things, and you're so moved by what you see. Or you heard something. Oh, what are you going to do? All your senses want to rule you, but your spirit says, hope in God. Don't get down in the dumps. You've got a promise. The Spirit of God will quicken you and reveal to you His Word if you're listening to it. Hiding it in your heart. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? And so if I want to live right, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against. It's simple. 
It's a simple life. The picture, as I said, all of this is beginning to unfold to me. It's clear. If I want to live right and be blessed of God in this life and be able to spread those blessings around, I do what he says. My family will benefit. They don't know it when they're growing up. They're just cool. Then They don't know what's going on, but they're blessed. They get older. They get it. They start believing that for their children. And a generation is singled out for blessing. They're blessed. And so that's the way God wants us to live. This is the way it's supposed to be. But your soul, that immaterial part of you that the world corrupted, is the part that God deals with. Psalm 23, your favorite psalm. He leads me beside the still waters. He brings me back to where I ought to be. He brings me from those dark, howling wildernesses of, of my life, and he brings me back to where the green pastures and the still waters are, where I can walk in peaceful communion with God. Even though I walk through the valley at the end of the verse... Even when I approach that valley where death's shadows are across there, trying their best to destroy your hope and make you down, he said, I won't fear it then. I'll fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff. Instruments of authority. That's what Moses threw down that turned into a snake. Remember that? And when it turned into a snake, what did God tell him to do to it? Pick it up again after it swallowed those other snakes. That was quick. I rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is nothing greater to look forward to in life than that. No wonder Paul was able to say, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where's your sting, or whichever way that was? We know in whom we have believed, and we are persuaded that he is able. And when it comes to physical things and you don't feel good, I cast all my concerns and anxieties and fears and uncertainties over on the Lord. I lay all of my burdens down at his feet, and any time I don't know what to do, I'll just trust the Lord. Amen? Well, that's better than trust the uncertainties of this world. So when it says, even as thy soul prospers, I could define it like this. Your soul is prospering when you are growing and you are putting to practice in your life the Word of God. You are prospering. So he said, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Now, I want to close today and give you two or three points on what is the evidence of a prospering soul. And there are hundreds. There are hundreds of ways you can go with this. I just picked out some verses that we don't hear much, but they are evidences of how our souls prosper. Now, I can say I prosper because I have i got $20 in my pocket. How many of you know right now as I'm standing here, I don't need $20. 
So I'm doing pretty good. Do I have more than I need right now? I think I've got $30 in there. So if I'm doing well spiritually, then no matter what confronts me tomorrow, when the enemy comes at you like a storm, God said he'll do what? He'll raise up a standard. Even in Deuteronomy 28, we didn't read a while ago, but he said he will cause your enemies that come against you one way, your enemies, whoever they are, real or imagined, your enemies that come against you one way, when they come against you, they will flee seven ways. What do your enemies see? I don't know, but there's something about God's people that when those who are intent on destroying them, they get around them, they go, ah, and they can't do it. Can't do it. You've heard stories and seen stories where a gun was put to somebody's head and they click it and it wouldn't work and they pow like it then click and pow it would shoot off only when it wasn't against the guy's head. Would you say God was protecting them? What is the evidence of prosperity? Well, first of all, very simply, you have a desire to grow. You never have a desire to grow until you have a desire to learn. Which takes us back to the very essential basics that God gave us in Deuteronomy 28. Diligently hearken and observe to do. To grow. That's how you grow. I don't mean growing fat and sassy. I'm talking about growing spiritually to where things are being replaced in your life. Things I once did, I don't do anymore. Why? Because I have light. Revelation from God. He said that's wrong, so I don't do that anymore. I don't go there. I don't drink that anymore. I don't watch that. There are things I don't do anymore because of God. Well, how'd you come to that over the years, just little by little, as somebody taught me, as I would read and study and meditate and contemplate what I've been hearing and, and process all of this? The Holy Spirit gives me a picture, and I see things I've never seen before in divine light. I see what God is saying. I said, oh, okay, now I know exactly what to do with certain things in certain situations because I have a revelation from the Lord. I'm not special. I'm not better than anybody. I'm not anybody outstanding. I'm just one person on this earth who wants to know what God wants me to do, and I have to find out first by listening and then making a decision to do it. you got to do that. That's the first thing you have to do. It will evidence that with these two things. Psalms 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who trust in him. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 119, 106 says, O how sweet to my taste are thy words. What does that mean? Do any of you know what that means? Well, it doesn't mean that you're actually eating them like you're eating a cookie or something. But spiritually speaking, as you would enjoy a good meal, your spirit enjoys the entrance of the Word, especially when you want it. When it's there with welcome arms, thank you. I pray that God would open my eyes today. The Lord would show me something. He is doing it now. Praise God. Praise God. I remember at the prayer meeting the other night. We were praying for Brother Terry. I remember how many times promises would just flood my mind, just kept coming, promises. And I would quote that back to God. And then while I was quoting it back to God, I was reminded of Isaiah 43, 26, where God said, put me in remembrance. 
You know, you don't have to feel some great, whoo, Holy Ghost is all over me. You don't have to feel that. All you have to do is believe that. And it was a wonderful, wonderful invasion. But these verses kept coming. These promises that have been hidden in this heart for years and years. All of that was brought to the surface as a word to give back to God because he said his word would not return back unto him empty. So that all the time I'm praying, it's not like, oh, Lord, heal, oh, Lord, heal, oh, Lord, heal. I asked that once. That's good. And while I'm here, I'm just thinking, Lord, I thank you for the word where you said. Just, well, minutes after minutes after minutes after minutes, they just kept coming. That's how we pray. This is what God responds to. His word, his ear is open to our cry when our cry is the word of God. So we have a spiritual appetite for God's word, which makes us grow. That's first. The second thing that will evidence this is the knowledge of wisdom. I don't want that to be over our heads. The knowledge of wisdom. Turn to the book of Proverbs, because that's where wisdom is spoken of more than anywhere else. Proverbs chapter 24. In verse 13, If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider? Well, I didn't know that. Don't you think God listens? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? My son, eat thou honey, because it is good and the honeycomb, which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. You will get what you want. You will get what you're praying for. Listen to me. The knowledge of wisdom. Wisdom, to oversimplify it, wisdom has to do with future. Knowledge has right now. Just like in the gift of spirit, the word of knowledge is something right now. It declares things either present or things past. I have seen thee, yea, I have told thee, yea, you have seen. And the word of wisdom is a direction word. It's all about the future. It's about something that has not yet come. Wisdom would be for us a revelation of how God wants us to deal or to go or to do something. And to know that. To have God show you this is the way walking in it is the knowledge of wisdom. If you'll put your finger here for just a moment, go to chapter 2, which is not that far back. In chapter 2, this whole chapter is about that. He said in verse 6, For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler and a shield. To the, he's their protection for those that walk upright. Now, wisdom is obviously important, just like knowledge and understanding. To know something is to have a revelation of something. To have wisdom is to know what to do with it. To have understanding is to see God's reasoning behind Oh, I see. It makes everything fit. You not only know something, you know what to do with it, but you know why God's wanting you to do it. He goes on to say, verse 10, When wisdom entereth into thine heart... 
And when knowledge is pleasant to thy soul, and you don't have to keep looking at your watch to see how much long you have to listen, uh, but knowledge is pleasant to your soul. He said, discretion shall preserve you, understanding will keep you. And he talks about delivering you from a, a bad woman, which will destroy you. And he talks about that several times in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom. Man shouldn't do that. Man shouldn't go there. How do you know? Because God showed me that. Oh, how did he show you that? I read his word. See, he shows us about our tomorrows. Keeping our hands on the plow. What's the wisdom in that? You've got to stay with it till the field's done. If you don't endure to the end, you might not be a happy camper. Wisdom shows us how, how difficult, how necessary, but how possible all of this is. I can't make it to the end by myself. But he has shown us that, as he says here, he will direct our steps, didn't he? Go back to the book of Psalms, chapter 32. Whew, this is good stuff here. This is a five-star restaurant here. This is where you sit down. It takes you a while to enjoy the fullness of this. Whoo-wee! What a meal. In verse 8, God says, And I will instruct thee and teach you in the way you should go. Is that wisdom? It is wisdom. I will instruct you and to teach you in the way that you shall go. And then God says, concerning what's coming, I will counsel or really guide thee with my eye upon thee. You are special. I called you out of darkness into my marvelous light. I am going to take you under my wings. I am going to be responsible to get you through to the end. You're going to do all you can do, but I'm going to make sure you make it. I know standing here today that I can't just say, oh, well, God will take me if he wants to. I know that I have to obey what he said. But my best day of obeying can't get me there. He still has to give me the rest of it. When you have done all that's required of you, he says after you have, in First Peter 5, after you've done all that you can do, God will himself strengthen, establish in something and keep you. And he's there. He's there this morning. He's here. He's here. But this is how you do it. Thirdly, finally, your growth is especially in the realm of your faith and your love. And I want you to turn to Second Thessalonians so we can stop. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. This is Paul's compliment to the... Thessalonians, for we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is necessary, because your faith groweth exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Now, these people had prospering souls. You know why? Even in poverty, even in their difficulties, two things were outstanding. Their faith in God and their love their care, their concern for each other. They didn't say, well, they may look at all the mistakes they made. They don't know. It didn't matter what mistakes they made. Nobody's perfect. When there was a need, we were there. When somebody was in trouble, they were there because they loved them. This is what a prospering soul does. It's when you stay in the shadows. It's when you're unwilling to get involved and you sort of stay distant from it all. That's not a prospering soul. 
You'll find people like that clamor, murmur, complain, justify self, find weaknesses and faults in other people and can't see their own. They got a log in their eyes and they see logs in other people's eyes because there's leanness. But when you prosper, when you prosper, your soul prospers, you're growing, you're rejoicing, you're understanding, your faith is there, your love is there, and you care. Isn't that good you care about people? Peter said, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what a prospering soul does, and we'll end with that. Grow in grace and in knowledge. You know what grace is? Favor. Does God favor some more than others? You better believe he does. Add grace upon grace, grace to grace. Let me tell you something. Grace is waiting to be given to all of God's people, but all of God's people are just turning their backs on it. You can frustrate the grace of God, but you should not. As we approach the communion table, we're blessed. We've been singled out in this world, in your life, for blessing. God wants richness to invade your hearts and your souls. He wants your heart to be set upon spiritual things. He wants you to find your joy and your peace in Him. And not count on this world making you happy, because it can't. But God can even when the world is falling apart. Uh, trust me with this. As the end comes for all of us, the world and the Lord comes before the Lord comes. We won't be dreading the world. We won't be complaining or crying about this world. We'll be rejoicing that our Lord and our Savior is coming back. All the things in this world are pointing to it more intensely than they ever have. He's about to come back. May he find us loving, faithful, and with hope. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks this morning for your word, for your truth, for your work of your spirit. We give you thanks for leading us and guiding us this far through our lives. We thank you for blessing us to where we're content. We no longer grumble about this or what other people have or what we don't have. But we know that we can access you ourselves. I pray that everybody in this room will prosper and be in health. Every one of us in a right way, in a good way, in your way, Lord. As we approach this communion table this morning, we most of all give you thanks for Jesus. Jesus who said, learn of me. And what we do know, Lord, is that because of him we're here. Because of what he did, we have hope. So bless this time of communion. Touch our hearts with this, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you men come forward and receive the bread and the cup? We would invite all of you that have been born again to join with us receiving communion.